The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. I recently had the privilege of speaking with Dr. David Griffin. Many of you will recognize his name as the first in engine driver for the Sofa Superstore fire that killed nine firefighters in Charleston, South Carolina. Dr. Griffin has used his experiences from that day and his entire career for the betterment of the fire service. The numerous accomplishments he has achieved along the way include a doctorate of education in organizational leadership, rising to the rank of assistant chief in the Charleston Fire Department, and author of four books. He is also a renowned public speaker, shedding light on organizational change in and outside of the fire service. More of his story and information can be found on his website at drdavidgriffin.com. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. there yeah so what we'll do is just start with uh, like i said just maybe some basic family history so you know where did you grow up what was your family life like just the real basic family stuff i was born in charleston south carolina i'm very thankful to be born and raised there been there my entire life which uh 42 years in one day well happy <laughs> birthday oh thank you very much thank you being from charleston i learned uh a lot about the history of the area just growing up there and then i went to the citadel which is the military college in Charleston. so being a part of that history and tradition of that college and then uh, my fire service career started after my baseball career i played baseball growing up in high school played in college and then uh, played minor league baseball for a couple of years and had a hard time making my transition to a wooden bat unfortunately so my minor league career was about two years and i had to go back to Charleston and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I had a few ideas of what I wanted to do. I thought about the military because I did have a military education and I would be able to go into a different level of the military from that. But I knew I wanted to do something in my hometown. I just wasn't a hundred percent sure what that was. And I had thought about the fire department after having a conversation with uh, the fire chief at the time and, he had mentioned it to me. He was a big baseball fan in Charleston. So being around the game a lot, he was always asking me about it. And I finally did some research on it and watched the necessary movies like Ladder 49 and Backdraft so I could see how the firefighters really do things. Oh, yeah. Just like kidding. the way we really do it. <laughs> yeah. So that was my only knowledge of, of being a firefighter. And the fire chief walked me into the stations and he introduced me to a few people. And as soon as I walked in, I just, I had a feeling it was something I really wanted to do. I, I felt that team atmosphere, that camaraderie, the crew on the engines and the ladders, I could tell how close knit they were. And that was being in the station for maybe five to 10 minutes. 
So it's just something that really uh, inspired me and I, I wanted to try it. I had zero knowledge. I knew nothing about the fire service. I knew nothing about being a firefighter, the culture, I, I knew zero. So the fire chief sponsored me and sent me to a class. It's called 1152. It's our basic intro to firefighting in South Carolina. And I, I took that class for six weeks on a Monday, Wednesday, Saturday schedule. And after that, I went to a recruit school, which was about two weeks long. And then I reported to my first day on shift on engine three which is at the corner of Meeting and Wentworth Street, which is it's the oldest working firehouse in the country. So it's pretty neat to, to be able to work in that station with two active fire engines running out of that station and a lot of history, a lot of tradition. And I realized very quickly that it was something I was going to love for the rest of my life, and it was going to be a, a big part of who I am today. What, what year was that? That was 2005 is when I started. Okay. And so what's your rookie year? My rookie year was awesome. I had a really good captain. He was about to make battalion chief. So he was really focused on his leadership style. And he was also training me a lot, trying to teach me the basics. Cause again, I had zero knowledge. I had a hard time tying knots. I had a hard time tying a clove hitch. I had very limited knowledge of any of that. So he really had to invest a lot of time in me to, to help me grow. He made battalion chief. And then I, I had a new captain that came in from a very busy engine company. And he had a really good reputation for being a really hard nosed, good captain. He trained me very hard. And that's really where I got a lot of my education from. And we had uh, quite a few, we had an arsonist in the area at the time. And a lot of the fires that we were able to go to were these arson fires. And I was learning a lot really quickly from a lot of good people. And it was educational for me because I literally had zero idea of what I was doing, why I was doing it. I was just following along and just enjoying the ride. And I learned so much that, that rookie year. And I wish I could go back and do it again because I would have done so many things different. I, I didn't realize the importance of a lot of things. And now almost 18 years later, I look back and I realize as a rookie, it's important to, to start off on the right foot. And I don't know if I really did that because I was just, I was young, I was cocky, I was arrogant. And I, there's a lot of young firefighters that I see that with today. And that's why my message really goes towards not being that way because you don't know what you think and, and your, your eyes open very quickly when you learn that, especially on a day when nine firefighters lose their lives. You mentioned it and we might as well jump right into it. You want to describe that day and what happened, what you were doing? On that day, I was on engine 11, which was the first new engine on June 18th. It was my first time driving to an actual structure fire. I'd been promoted a couple of months before that. And as you, when you're promoted to a new position, you're actively waiting for your first fire in that position. And being a backup driver, I had driven to different calls, EMS calls. I believe I drove to a hazmat call and a few different false alarms, but I had never driven to an actual fire where I was going to be the pump operator. And as soon as I pulled out of the station, I, I knew that I didn't prepare myself enough to be successful that day. My hands are shaking. My feet were shaking. I was nervous. I was going through what I should do. And that's a really scary time to figure out that you probably should have trained a lot harder and worked a lot harder as a firefighter. Yeah. That's not the right time you want to figure that out. Is it? It's not. And the unfortunate part is you see it a lot in our profession and it's not bad intention. It's good people with good intention, but you don't know what you don't know until you don't know. And on a situation like that, it's too late to figure it out. And 
there's a lot of things that I didn't know that a lot of us didn't know. And it, it wasn't bad intention. We were good people with good intentions. We woke up on Monday, June 18th, just like every other firefighter in this country woke up to do the best of our abilities. And unfortunately on that day, we weren't successful. And we learned a lot from that day going forward, not just in our department, but on the fire service as a whole across the globe. So what happens during that fire? I think most of us know the story, but not everyone that listens to the show is going to be a firefighter. So maybe a, a brief history of that incident. So the incident on June 18th, 2007 occurred at the Sofa Superstore fire. So it was a large, it was a large commercial structure with a warehouse connected to it in the rear. That was a furniture store. And as you like furniture store, it has a lot of furniture in it. It's a very heavy fuel load for the firefighters who are listening, heavy fuel load. And so for us, when we arrived on scene, we, we went about it and, and, and we did what we thought was appropriate. And as the situation's playing out, you start to hear people who are calling for maydays and you, you start to hear people asking for lines to be charged. And as I'm the pump operator, I'm trying to figure out really what I'm, I'm going through at that moment. I'm so stressed as I get there, I go through fight, flight, or freeze, and my skill set wasn't where it needed to be. And at one point I froze and one point I'm trying to figure out what to do and I'm going back to my basic skill sets and I can only imagine everyone else in their different positions are going through the same thing because for us, we weren't prepared for something of that magnitude. And then we're trying to figure out how do we get through that event to extinguish the fire, but also how many people are we missing? How do we go inside and find the firefighters who have been lost? How many are we missing? And as it started to unfold, it just turned into one of those life-changing moments, not for just the firefighters on scene, but really for the fire service. Because as we look back on that, there's so many lessons that have been learned about big box structures, about uh, operating on those types of fires and commercial structures with furniture and water supply and different issues of incident command. And we learned so much from that. It's made us a better profession. Yeah, with an incident, any major incident, but especially one where you lose nine firefighters, you have to learn something from it, right? Oh, absolutely. And and we've learned so much and we're still learning. And we're 15 years and a few months out from 15 years. And it's amazing to think that we're still learning and there's other places still learning from this. You can go to fire departments in this country today and you talk about the story and it's 15 years and a couple of months old and everyone relates to it. It's because it's human. We're, we're human. We make mistakes. We don't do these things on purpose. We don't want these types of incidents to occur, but when they do, it's our responsibility to learn from them and be better going forward. And the big message I, I try to get across to people is that the only difference between me and them is one day, one moment in time. It could have easily been them, but it was us and we learned a valuable lesson and we want these mistakes to be learn from so no one else makes the mistakes we we made those mistakes and and we've learned from that and we've tried to give that information out to the fire service and really in all professions because this, this incident just doesn't relate to the fire service it relates to all professions in general because it's at the end of the day it comes down to human behavior over time when you do things a certain way and you're always successful then that shows you that you get that belief that you're really good at a certain way of operating. And then one day you don't have another skill set, another toolbox to pull a tool from your toolbox to pull from to operate. And that's essentially where we were on that day. We didn't have the tools in our toolbox to operate, whether it was 
the water supply we needed, the incident command, the leadership styles that we, we just didn't. And, and it wasn't bad intention. It was all good intention. It was just one of those days that you have issues with human behavior and culture and they clash and you have a major tragedy. So at the end of that incident, you guys as a department lose nine firefighters. What's the reaction from that moment forward for everybody, for the department, for individuals? That was a challenge because for many of us, we were trying to figure out really what happened. It, it was hard to be objective about that because when you go through something like that's traumatic, your timeline's off. You don't understand all of the ins and outs of the operation until you take a step back and you look at it objectively with the timeline and you see how it played out. And once we started to learn more about it and different reports were coming out and it was hard for many of us because we looked at that and we realized that there were things that we could have done better and we legitimately just didn't know. It wasn't something that we were doing on purpose. And I think that was the hardest part for a lot of us because we had to be totally reeducated on the way that we did things. And for me, I was only on the job two years and two months up to that point. So for me, adjusting was a little easier for individuals that had 20 and 30 years on the job. Think how hard it was for them to adjust. They had done, they had operated that way for so long and then a, a tragedy happens and now they're having to change everything they've ever done. And I, I empathize with that so much because I saw a lot of good people that were struggling to get through that. And it was difficult to move forward because you started to lose a lot of good people that had a lot of institutional and organizational knowledge. And as that started to leave, we were struggling because we, we still had to have people in the battalions as battalion chiefs. We still had to have assistant chiefs. We still had to have captains and firefighters and drivers. And so as that starts to occur and we start to lose firefighters, we we're starting to have younger firefighters that are promoting and then we're bringing in a, a new class of firefighters and that's just continues and 15 years out there's only 57 of us left from the original 246 that were in the department on that day and so that's a pretty large percentage and that all of those individuals that left they weren't those that had the time to retire you know there were quite a few that left because this incident took a heavy toll mentally and emotionally and rightfully so because you go to work one day and you, you don't expect this to happen. And then 12 hours into your shift, nine of your friends that you've known and some of the individuals that had to leave, they've known them for a lot longer than I did. And it, it, it was a challenge to see people to go through that because you felt for them and you wanted to help them. And we didn't have any mental health program. We didn't have anything that the day after to, for us to go and talk with anybody. We did have chaplains and, and we did have a system like that, but it wasn't anything like it is today across the emergency services where now we have peer support and we, we talk about a lot of these different traumatic calls on a continual basis because we realize the importance of talking about it and getting that stuff off our chest and out of that proverbial file cabinets in the back of our mind because over time we just store all these calls and eventually they're, they're going to come to the forefront. So we're trying to prevent a lot of that today. So for you personally, I have to imagine, well, I, I won't imagine, but let's just talk about the toll that it took on you as an individual, as that engine, you know, that driver for that day and that crew member from that day. That was, it was hard to process it. I got off shift the next morning and I just went home. I, I didn't, I really know what to do. Do I just go home and go about my business? Do, I don't, you don't know what to do. There's no book for that. And at that point in our profession, there was no, again, no peer fitness or peer support. I just went home about my business and talked with my wife and tried to 
suck it up and move on like we've always been taught to do as firefighters and military police and EMS. And that really wasn't working for me. And I could look around and see a lot of good people that it wasn't working for them either. A lot of us that were doing whatever we could do to get through the day, that's when a lot of alcohol and prescription drugs were being added into the mix. And guys were really struggling. They were upset with each other. We were just upset in general. And we, we really didn't know how to move forward. And a guy named Tom Carr came in and he realized that we had some issues because we hadn't done any mental health help since the incident. And he, he came in and he really started to lay that foundation for the importance of getting that help. And that's where the firefighter support team was created with a vision. And then we brought in some local individuals who had an idea of how to start this. And one specific person's been with that firefighter support team since the, its inception and still with it today. And it's a former fire chief. His name is Gerald Mishu. And he just did an excellent job of, of getting us the help we need. We started off with counselors and he was able to get us the counseling and, and, and get us to understand that it's important just to start talking with it. And that's really where you started to see a lot of changes in people positively. You saw a lot of guys able to get the help they needed. And it was a struggle at first. We went to counseling and we, many of us, including myself, I didn't believe in it. I didn't think it was going to work. And so I gave it an honest effort and I went in and I, I did my best. And as I started to feel better, I realized that there's a lot to having a good counselor on your side and talking through specific things that bother you. And I specifically used EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization, reprocessing or remodeling. So as I went through that, it allowed me to really process those thoughts that I had really stored away for four years up to that point, because for about four years, I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it. I didn't want to read newspaper articles. I didn't want to hear about it. People would ask me at work. I didn't want to give them any information. I was uh, just, I was just very angry at everything. And in reality, I was angry at myself because as I started to read more of these reports on the event, as I started to learn really more about how we operate as a firefighter and as a driver, I realized that, man, I, I made some mistakes that night that I was, I, I just didn't know. I, essentially my training wasn't there to, to teach me. And I, and I go back to personal accountability. Like I want to make sure that I, I, I was better going forward. And I think that's why it's so important for me when people hear the message that they look in the mirror and they ask themselves hard questions. Are you ready to operate in the capacity that, you are in. If you're a captain, can you be a captain? If you're a driver, can you be a driver? If you're struggling to do certain things, it doesn't make you a bad person, but you have to figure out how to make it better because I promise you, you do not want to be in the middle of a major event and you don't know how to fix the problem. It is absolutely helpless when you hear people on the radio saying, help me, and you don't know what to do. You have no idea where to go. And for me as the operator was one perspective. Now you have to transmit that or translate that to everyone else on scene. You have, think about what my officer was feeling. Think about what the fire chief was feeling. Think about what an assistant chief was feeling. Think about what the other engine drivers were feeling. Think about what the nine firefighters in the building were feeling. Like this is such an important event to think about the perspective of everyone there because it affected so many people in so many different ways from that one moment in time, and essentially it was 27 minutes. In 27 minutes, we arrived on scene to a trash fire, and 27 minutes later, it was venting out the front windows, and we have Maydays coming out, and we have firefighters who are trying to get out of the building. That's how quickly this event unfolded, 
and 15 years and a couple months later, we're still trying to, to move past that. So it's rough. I, I want to circle back a little bit because you said that you got off shift the next morning and obviously now through your description of that, the reason why is because the, your department just wasn't equipped to deal with that kind of a tragedy. There was no, nothing put in place, I assume at all. There wasn't in 07, there wasn't too many departments that had anything in place for something like this. It was, you were trying to figure it out as it occurred. And unfortunately there's a lot of departments today that are still that way. And I, when I go to different places and I talk about mental health, I urge them, I challenge them as a leadership team to have a plan in place for this. If you have a line of duty death, what is your plan? Who's going to make the notification? Do you have a peer support staff? on standby? Do you have chaplains? Do you have a place to where you're going to muster the families? Because these are all things that we saw play out in real time. And again, we learned that lesson the hard way. Nobody sits down one day and says, we need to write a line of duty death policy. They don't, you don't think about that. And then when you experience, you realize it's very important to have something like that because you're going to be struggling to get through that process anyways. But now on top of that, you have to be able to talk with the families, notify the families, but you also have a huge department. It could be our size or it could be much larger. Or it could be smaller, but you also have a department that's looking at you for that leadership and guidance. How do we get through this? And many times departments don't have that. And it's, it's again, it's because it's something we don't think will happen to us. So you talked about your personal journey. You said four years, you didn't speak of it. You didn't want anybody to know what was going on or you did, maybe you couldn't even express what was going on. Is, is it one of those? Could you not even express it? I didn't want to talk about it or think about it I, because it bothered me and it, it affected me so much. It made me angry. And as I worked through this, I realized that it's always going to bother me. It bothers me right now, sitting here talking with you, but I, I can either own that and I can be better going forward and try to help other people be better going forward mentally, emotionally, operationally, or I can think about it and it's still going to make me feel that way. So that's that was my way of understanding that either way, I'm going to be thinking about it. And so I would rather think about it and do something positive with it. I don't enjoy talking about this, but this is therapy for me too. But I know there's someone that's listening to this right now one person, if they can get some help from what we've experienced or what I've gone through, then that's a benefit because it helps them get through whatever they're going through in their life. It doesn't have to be a line of duty death. It doesn't, it could be something that's traumatic to them. And over time, I realized that what I was doing, I was doing a disservice to these nine firefighters that lost their lives because a lot of what I hear is on traumatic events is it's hard to talk about. Absolutely. It's hard. It's always going to be hard to talk about. It's going to be hard to talk about forever, but it's how you manage that and what you do with that, that makes it a lesson learned for others. And they can listen to you and they can learn from what you've been through. And that's really when I opened up and I started talking about it more because as firefighters, we're, we really don't like talking about these types of things. And I realize if we don't talk about it, someone's going to talk about it. And that someone's probably not going to be a firefighter. It's not going to be someone who has experienced what we've experienced. And it's not going to be someone that has gone through what we've gone to, through and continued working. And that was really my goal. I, want, I wanted people to learn from somebody that's still 
I'm still, I just got home from work. I'm still working every day. I, I'm still trying to put my best foot forward and, and be better. And I'm, I'm living my message. I'm walking the walk every day and I'm doing what I'm trying to do to make it better. And if that helps one person, then that's, it's worth what I'm feeling right now if it helps one person. In those first years before you got into therapy, how did, did you self-medicate? I did. I, I drank alcohol and then prescription drugs. And these were things that would help me numb what I was going through. And it was, it really started innocently. I had a little back injury and I went to get some, some painkillers for the back injury. And, and that's usually how it starts. And it turned into that. And I continued and thankfully it was short lived and I was able to get help and I was able to work food. And I realized that this wasn't the, this wasn't the direction that was going to get me over what I was feeling. And that was rough though. It was rough on my, my wife, of course, cause she saw me and she knew I wasn't feeling like myself. She could tell I wasn't being myself. And in the process, I'm fighting mixed martial arts. So I'm training for that. And I'm just, I have a different attitude and I'm training for these fights and I'm cutting weight and I'm gaining weight. And it was a big emotional roller coaster for her. And I, you think back now and you feel so bad about what you put her through because she didn't deserve to go through that. She didn't. That's not what she signed up for. All credit to her. She stuck it with me. She helped me. I and mean, the reason why I'm still here today and we've been together 22 years and I'm, I'm so thankful for that because without her seeing my issues and being brave enough to just talk with me and not get mad with me, it allowed me to get the help that I needed. So you start therapy and you started EMDR and it, four years after the fire. I did. How long, how long do you go through that process? I did EMDR for a little over a year. And I would say when I first started EMDR, I didn't believe in it. It was weird. I felt like I was being hypnotized, but I will also say at that point in my life, I didn't believe in a whole lot of anything, but I did. When I went into the counselor the first time I, I said, I was going to have an open mind and we just did some basic talk therapy. And as we did talk therapy, we worked through a couple of sessions and then it was suggested that we try EMDR and, as I went through it the first time, I didn't really feel a whole lot, but I maybe felt a little bit. I just wasn't sure. And then so I kept coming back every week. And as I did it, it would progressively get worse, of course, because you're re you're opening these memories that you've stored. And now you're trying to actually process them because most of the time what we do with trauma is we don't process it. We just store it away because we don't want to talk. What was happening was that was opening all of these emotions and really all of these memories I had from the event and I was able to t put my timeline back together. But as I'm doing that, we could only go a few minutes at a time because I was getting very emotional. I was, I was crying. I was upset. I was yelling. And as I'm going through that, the counselors, she's keeping me as calm as she can, but she obviously knew that there was a time to break after some of those intense moments and we would move on and I would come back the next week and we'd dive into it again. And as we did it, we just kept getting deeper and deeper and to the point to where I was able to talk through it and be objective about it. I wasn't being emotional. I was being more objective about what I was talking about. And as I was doing that, I was also going to school. So I was learning a lot about leadership and um, organizational development. And I was doing a lot of research on mental health and what I was going through. And it all just came together to allow my mind to, to get to where I understood what I was feeling, why I was feeling it, but also not let it 
inhibit me from moving forward on a positive note. And I was, I'm very thankful for that because it, I could have just as easily gone the other direction. Everybody takes trauma differently. And I'm always very empathetic of that. So when you finished that year, I'm assuming you still stayed in some kind of a therapy or, or were you finished with it completely? No, I did. I stayed in therapy with talk therapy. And then as I, I would get a tune up intermittently, I would go back and then I was able to work with other counselors over the years. And so as I've done that, I, I've really got a good relationship and with counselors. And I feel that I'm to a point today to where I can, I can move forward and I don't have to go as much as I used to. I'm much more at peace. I understand how I'm feeling. I know why I feel certain ways at certain times. But there's times to where I know that I need to go have a tune up and I need to talk through it. And I, I listen to my body. I listen to my mind and I go do that when I need to. And the EMDR, the, the counselor you did the EMDR with, was this someone that was already familiar with first responders or was this, or this person worked with just everybody? She was specifically focused on first responders, and which was cool because she was working with a lot of us from our department. She was also working with other first responders in the area. So she was very aware of what we'd experienced. And that was one of my biggest items I wanted to see in a counselor. Was the counselor able to work with individuals in emergency services? Because firefighters, police, military, EMS, we all, we're a little bit different. We're a different breed. That's not a good or a bad thing. It's just how we are. And I wanted to have someone that kind of understood our mentality in certain situations. And at first I wasn't real sure, but then as we started to talk more, I realized that, yeah, she understands it. She gets it. She's worked with other firefighters and I felt comfortable enough to continue. And I'm glad that I did because it really, it allowed me to progress to where I am today. You mentioned that while you were doing this, you were going to school and learning the mental health side of things or part of the mental health side of things. Tell us about your schooling and what you've done with that. When I went back to school, I wanted to really focus on leadership. It's always something that I've I've gravitated towards. When I went to the Citadel, we learned about principled leadership and everything you do at that school is to teach you to be a leader. And I, I took that knowledge I had from the Citadel and I was trying to replicate that in my current life as being a firefighter because I was trying to get my life going in a better direction. I always remember the Citadel taught me discipline. It taught me structure and I was getting out of that discipline and that structure for some reason. So I had to refocus. So when I went back to school, I focused on that leadership aspect, but also getting my life more organized and focusing on items that I really wanted to learn more of that I thought could help us in organizations. And as I started studying leadership, I, it really opened me up to an entirely new world of development and processes and departments. And there's so many things that you don't know until you start to read and you research and you dive really deep. And that's what I did. I, I compared our department with other organizational crises that have occurred. You can use Johnson and Johnson from the Tylenol incident that occurred mm -hmm. back in 1982. You can use uh, NASA. There was a lot of different examples I used because what I was finding out was that as an organizational crisis ensues in your organization and going forward, what you're going to see is the entire look of that organization is going to change the way it's led, the equipment, everything about it is going to evolve in multiple iterations because you're trying to figure out the new normal. And I was seeing that in real life. And it was really cool for me because when I was going to my residencies for my dissertation, we were in class and 
really good students in the class. And a lot of them were speaking from theoretical terms. And as I was in there, I was speaking from real life and theoretical terms because many of the items we were studying, I was seeing play out in real life. I was seeing the crisis. I was seeing the different leaders coming into our organizations, the successful ones, the non-successful ones. And it was, I don't know, it was just so interesting to me to be able to learn about the craft of leadership, but also watching it at the same time unfold in an organization that went through a major traumatic event. And that's really where my studies have have taken me. I, I've focused on that and I've tried to evolve leadership on, on my aspect, but also the people that I work with. I'm always wanting to work with them and try to help them as much as I can on the leadership side. And what, mainly what I teach about when I travel is the, the principal leadership and then servant leadership and then also mental health awareness. And I'm just very blessed because I, I never considered myself to be someone who would love to go to school and learn more and then be able to be a practitioner of it. But I consider myself that I'm, I'm a student of the game. I'm a practitioner, but I'm also constantly learning. And I, I think it, it just adds so much value to the profession. And one more thing I want to, uh, not one more, another thing I wanted to talk about was uh, how you're relating trauma and tattoos um, from your book. Yeah. What'd you find with the book? It was so interesting, that process. And this really started from an email. I was talking through one of my classes one day and I was talking with some people and I, I noticed when I was going through my issues after the event I, I had an urge to go get some tattoos and all of my tattoos I was designing was related to what I was experiencing in my life. I have David and Goliath. That, that was my journey. I felt like I was fighting Goliath because I couldn't get myself where I needed to be after this event. So I got David and Goliath and I was getting these other tattoos. I have, I have nine angels on my arm. That's the represent the nine firefighters. And it was interesting to me. And so I started reading about it. And as I was reading about it, I, I realized that, man, there's thousands of years of research that shows tattoos and traumatic experience. They've been connected for quite some time is that's how we memorialize different types of events in our lives. And as I started to research it, I was blown away. And then I got an email of someone who was very upset with me that said they didn't agree that tattoos had anything to do with helping trauma and had nothing to do with trauma. And so I, I had a few links that I wanted to send them that was some really credible links. And there was a lot of nonprofit tattoo shops that were reaching out to veterans after the Afghan, after their time in Afghanistan. And they were talking through how the tattoo gave them a little bit of reprieve. And what they would do is as they were getting a tattoo, they would talk to the tattoo artist about whatever that event was or whatever that traumatic experience was. And they said, at least they were able to get that off of their chest for those couple of hours they were getting a tattoo and it really blew me away. And so I asked myself, am, am I the only one that feels this way? And obviously there's others. I wonder what emergency responders think. So that's where the idea of the book came in. I wanted to study just first responders and emergency responders and see what their thoughts were. And 87% of the people that we interviewed said that they felt that getting their tattoo was a way of getting through that trauma. And I always try to articulate this in my book is that I'm not a medical doctor. And I was never saying that it was going to heal your trauma. My, my whole goal was to, for people to realize that we all have different perceptions and perspectives of what is going to help us. And if it's something that you believe is helping you and it's keeping you 
to where you feel positive and it's allowing you to get through this traumatic experience. Who are we to say that it doesn't help someone? And it really blew me away after I read a lot of the information and a lot of the descriptions of the tattoos. It was really eye-opening to hear what emergency responders were getting tattooed. You said 87%? 87% of the individuals that we interviewed in the book said that they felt that tattoos had that, that feeling of helping them get through the traumatic event where I basically it was something where they wanted to memorialize something that they had been through. So that just really opened my eyes. Yeah. That's an astonishing number to be honest. It is. It blew me away. I didn't know what I was going to see. I, I simply created a survey and I put it out on all of my social media. And I said, if you'd like to be a part of a study, please go through this survey and click it. It's 100% anonymous. And as the results started to come in, I was just like, wow, this is really interesting. And a lot of the information in there were specific descriptions of those tattoos, what they look like, why they were getting those tattoos. Some of there for a mother and a father who may have been have lost their life or some had tattoos that were related to a combat veteran that had lost their lives. And it was really eye-opening to me. It, it, it was a lot deeper than I thought it was going to be, that's for sure. I know when I read the book, I cataloged the, the ink that's on my body and, and definitely some of that as well. And so it's it just, for me, it, it kind of drove it home for me as well, just reading the book. Yeah, and I think the interesting part of me was I, I just always, I, I try to meet people where they are and I understand that everyone takes things differently. And the the book was to just show a different perception of tattoos. And it's not just about the tattoos. It's about people are going to go through different challenges after a traumatic event. For us in that book and for myself, I use tattoos to, to tell my story and you can see my story. Other people may use something else, but it's got to be something that they feel is going to be positive and help them get through. And if that gives them a couple of hours to talk through something that they're afraid to talk about, they were very passionate about it. There's three people that, that folks like to talk to, like the therapist, someone that cuts their hair, and their tattoo artist. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. When I was getting my tattoos, I don't talk. When I get a tattoo and my tattoo artist, he goes into trance, I always say. So the guy that, ta that he's done every bit, all my tattoos, every tattoo I have, both arm sleeves, both leg sleeves, my chest and my back piece. He's done every bit of ink on my body and he doesn't talk. He go, he, he looks at what he's going to do and he goes to work and he literally is like in a trance, which is always interesting to me because with, we talk before and after, but during the tattoo, I never talk and he doesn't, but as I was getting those tattoos, I would look around in the tattoo shop and I saw everyone else was talking. They were talking about the tattoo, like what they were getting it for. It could have been a flower. It could have been anything. And they were talking about why they were getting that tattoo. So it was really interesting that everyone else was talking, but I'm the one going through it. But I talked before or after it. <laughs> it was so it was so interesting. Yeah, that's. I don't think I've ever had a tattoo done that it's been silence and just sit there and listen to the machine go. So I've never had a silent session like that. That's funny. Yeah. He, he just, he turns his music on and he just goes to work. And, but we'd always talk before cause he would, I gave him the freedom to design the, the pieces. And I'd say, this is what I'm thinking. I'm feeling this. I want to do something like this. What do you think? And he'd come back with some awesome black and gray sketch. And I'd say, yeah, that's it. And then he, we would go into it. Like, why do you want this? And I would explain it to him and, that whole process, my explanation to him why I would want it 
that would allow him to then go in and put all the details in there. So that's where he got the idea for the nine angels and the stars around the angels. And so that, that piece of me talking about what I was feeling to a tattoo artist allowed it to design it. And now when I look, I remember that interaction. It's a really cool, it's a really cool memory. Yeah. And even though I speak throughout the whole time I get a tattoo, it still is a form of meditation for me, I think. A painful meditation, but a meditation all the same. Yeah, I would agree. I think I would be so relaxed as you feel it, but you're so relaxed and you're almost in that meditative state because you're so focused on getting that tattoo. And then afterwards, I always felt so, so calm. I, I felt super calm. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had all the stress I had when I came in there. And it was really just as eye opening to me. But over time, as I started to get more tattoos, I had to start cutting my sessions down because I was actually getting something called the tattoo flu. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but I would actually start to feel achy and my joints would hurt a little bit is because I was getting so much at one time, so much ink, it, it, my body was not accepting it. So I had to I had to slow down a little bit and only do a couple of hour sessions than what I was doing. Yeah, as I say, you just have some sort of organ transplant wants to reject. That's pretty much what it was doing. It was weird at first because I didn't understand why I was doing it. And then as I started to back off a little bit, I felt better. And, you know, you live and you learn. So you graduate school when? Uh, the Citadel? No, when you went back to school after the incident, when do you finish that school? Oh, okay. So I finished uh, my doctorate in 2013. And where do you go from there? There's been a few years there and you have, you still have an interesting story. So what are you doing with it now? I, I never, when I went back to school to learn, it was essentially, I wanted to learn as much as I could about leadership. And as I was getting through that process, I had, I had gone to a, a conference in Indianapolis and it was a FDIC. And I had went to this conference and this is a very large fire service conference. It's one of the largest every year. And I was going there as a student. My department had chosen me to go and take classes because I had never gone to any kind of classes outside of my department. So I was really excited about this. And when I walk into that convention center, I am just blown away by the amount of classes, the amount of people. And so I'm going to every class I can get. I'm trying to be a sponge with all this information. So as I'm, I'm taking these classes, I go to a class of a gentleman talking about apparatus positioning and really pump operations, which that's something I was still involved in because I was still at that, that rank at that time. And as I went into the class, I didn't think anything of it. There's no way I would think anything about June 18th would come up in the class. And then all of a sudden, the picture of the engine I'm trying to pump and me standing in front of the engine flashes on the overhead. And this instructor who, he had good intentions. He, he wasn't trying to be mean or malicious. He had said a few things about the positioning that was incorrect. He had said that apparatus had to be moved during the event and the apparatus didn't move during the entire event or the day after it had to be investigated. So when he said that, it just, it hurt me because you had an individual who he meant 100% but didn't do the research to make sure that knew what he was talking about on a line of duty death. That's one of the most major line of duty deaths in our history. And I started to think if this person thought that other people that thought that too, about that one small perspective. And that's really when I wanted to come back the following year and teach a class on June 18th, 2007. And I called it from tragedy to triumph. 
And I wanted to talk about that because I, I wanted someone, I wanted people to hear from someone who was actually there and experienced it, who was on the pump panel, who saw the, the firefighters go inside. And I thought it would be a, a better perspective than a reporter or someone who didn't have that intimate knowledge. So I went back the next year and I was very fortunate. I submitted an application to FDIC. They accepted me and I was able to teach the class. And I taught that class and it was the class was packed. I didn't know what to expect. I had never taught a class in that realm. I had never spoken in front of a lot of people as a firefighter. I didn't really know what to expect, but you have a class full of firefighters in all different generations and ages. And as you can imagine, I was super nervous, but I went through and I, I talked about the event and the emotional toll of it took on our department and myself and then the firefighters. And afterwards, it, it was... It, it really, it was upsetting to even be able to comprehend what just occurred because I just had to relive it again. But everybody was so complimentary and I was so thankful that they appreciated it because you never know how that's going to be received. And after that, I, I received a phone call from someone in the class that said, you, you have a really good class. I'd like to help you make it better. And it was really neat because this person, he just wanted, he literally wanted to help me. And I talked with him. And, I, and I, he gave me some ideas and I started to build out a class and he was wanting me to come to his fire department and talk about it. And he was helping me build the class out for his department. And I went there and after that, I just, I started traveling and that's been nine years and five months. So for nine years and five months, I've, I've been to close to a thousand fire departments in three different countries and organizations that are, you know, for-profit corporate organizations as well and different universities. And it's, it's just blowing my mind because this was never a thought process or never a plan for me. I, I, I wanted to go teach the class one time at a conference and it just turned out to be something totally different. That's um, now become part of my life's work. And I'm very fortunate. I'm very blessed. I'm thankful every day that I get a chance to go out and, and talk about not just June 18th. Today, it's 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 really evolved into talking about principled leadership and discussing mental health awareness and trying to get the firefighters out there to understand that this job bothers us. It's not we're not robots. We're we're not built for this. We we have issues. We have feelings. We have emotions, and it's something I always want to educate more and more firefighters on because I, I do believe that until. Every firefighter knows that they can get some help for mental health, that they're going to continue to struggle. So throughout the time I've been listening and jotted down some questions for you and just three of them, if you're willing, I'll offer them up one at a time to you. Absolutely. You mentioned that your basic skill sets not being where they needed to be on the sofa superstore. How did you, how do you go about helping people realize just because they're promoted or pass a test like a DPO or whatever, that they still need to increase and hone their skill into a level of say naturalization? That's a challenge because our promotional processes are set up. So they're objective, but also when people pass them, they may get a false sense of security that they're good at what they do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it means you pass an objective test. I always urge individuals to not study for a test, study for reality. Because if you study for reality, when that test is put in front of you, you're going to blow the test away because you've practiced decision-making and troubleshooting. And essentially, that's what our, our job is to troubleshoot and make a decision with incomplete information very quickly, and we have to stay calm. And that's a really hard equation to go through if you haven't practiced it in a stressful environment. And that's why you see the best 
officers and the best crews, they have that continuity because they're always going out and they're training with that stress placed on them. The captain is doing a good job of educating the firefighters on why it's important to have that skill set because you may not be tested for 30 years. You may never get tested, but on 30 years and one day you're tested, you want to know that your skill set is there. And that's essentially why it's so important to train and get more experience and go to national conferences and, and take online courses and read. This is an evolving profession. And if, if we're going to be professionals in this profession, we have to make sure that we're reading and, and we're educating ourselves. It's just like any other profession. You look at surgeons, they're always going to continuing education conferences. They're always going to learn more about robotics training. They're always reading. They're always educating themselves because that world moves very fast. For us in our profession, it's so built on history and tradition. Sometimes it's very hard for us to move at that fast pace. And that's just a challenge that we're always going to have. Yeah, that, that honing to naturalization is such a tough thing. And, and it's such a tendency, especially in society in general, to teach to a test. Absolutely, because we want everyone to be successful. And I want people to be successful too, but I want you to be good at what you do to be successful. Because in our business, when you're not good and you are in a position as I was in that day and you think you're at a skill set you need to be at and you're actually not, you're going to find out in the worst of ways, in the worst moment of your life. And you're not just going to figure it out. There's a lot of times that in our profession, we have firefighters who they think they're just going to figure it out. There's going to be a stressful environment and I'm going to just magically know how to do all of these things. And it's not, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to freeze. It's human behavior. And, but over time, when nothing happens, you have no consequential moment. So you normalize that deviant behavior to a point to where nothing happens. I'm okay. And then you stop doing certain things. Maybe the first time is you don't check your pack off and ah, nothing happened. I'm not going to check it off tomorrow. And then nothing happens the third day. I won't check it off this day either. And it all starts very innocent. It starts with something really small. And then when there's no consequence to that, then over time it builds up. And I'm not saying consequence as in you're being held accountable or anything like that. I'm saying fixing the behavior as the officer. I'm saying the officer making sure educating the crews on this is why we do this. We check our pack off every day because we take care of each other going in that building. Those are the things that I try to get individuals to understand about human behavior because in that team environment on an engine, if you can't take care of yourself, how are you going to take care of the other person on that rig? And it's super important. No, it's yeah. That's the only importance is taking care of each other. That's that, that, that's the essence of when you come to work every day and you're going through your processes of checking off your air pack and checking off your rig and doing that training with your company and doing tabletops and doing pre-plans. These are all part of our profession to make sure we're taking care of us to go inside of these different structures and to be able to serve our community. That, that's what we signed up for. That's our oath. And I'm super passionate about individuals seeing that perspective because it's coming from someone who didn't understand that perspective. I, I didn't understand that because I, I didn't dive deep into this profession. I didn't realize that it's such a powerful profession where we can help so many people, not just externally, but internally as well. And it's once you dive into it and you really become a student of the game, it opens up a whole new world to this profession. Back towards the beginning of the episode, you mentioned that even sitting here today talking about the incident still bothered you and that you wanted your main goal is to have someone learn from your story. Absolutely. So how have you reframed your view to increase resiliency in the fire service? 
I reframed my view to realize that we are going to we are going to go to work and go to bad calls. We're going to see things that are going to bother us. And it's our job to become resilient over time by getting that mental health help, starting as a recruit firefighter. We have to do better as a profession of making sure we educate our firefighters in recruit school. When they're 10 years in, it's too late. The thing we're seeing now on the mental health side is you have individuals that are coming into fire departments that are predisposed to post-traumatic stress because they've already been traumatized in some other form in their life. It could be childhood abuse. It could be they were veterans. They could have been a firefighter somewhere else. We think for some reason when these young firefighters walk into our departments and say, I'm here to serve, that they're a clean slate. And what we're seeing, most times they're not. And, and that's just part of being a human. And so we bring them into our organizations and we don't let them know what they're going to experience, the types of calls they're going to see. And then they go on the first call. And it's a rough call. It could be a suicide, and they're not prepared for that. On our end, it's our job to prepare them in recruit school the best that we can. In our recruit school, we talk about mental health. We bring in our counselors. We bring in our director of the peer uh, support team. We talk through the Sofa Superstore event. We take the firefighters to the Sofa Superstore site. We talk about the mental health toll it's taken our organization. We have individuals that are still in our organization that come out for that presentation and talk through it. And they talk through how it is to still be on the job. And that's we're trying to build that resiliency early in these firefighters so they know when they go to these calls, they're going to feel certain emotions. It's going to bother them, but they can't bottle that up inside. The hope is as they move forward and they go to engineer and then acting captain and then captain, we now have a core of these individuals who are, are understanding about mental health. And then now they can educate the younger firefighters as they're coming through the ranks. And so it's a total culture shift, not just in our organization, but in, in all organizations that are emergency responders. We're all starting to talk about this a lot more. The scary part for me is there's still a lot of departments that aren't. And there are members of those departments who want to, and nothing has been done to allow them to talk through it or get a peer support team or, or anything like that. And that's scary to me because the, the, the time is, is right now. We have to get that mental health help to our firefighters or we're going to continue to see the suicide rate increase. And it, it's scary to see that. Yeah, starting that. I was going to say young, but it's not young. Just starting that early in their career because not every recruit's right. young. And right. like you said, everybody's coming in with their own set of, you know, traumas and issues. And, and okay. if you've got that glass full before you even start, then what we add on the job is just going to overfill it quickly. For sure. And I think when you're on the front end of it, when they're young in their career as firefighters, when you make that conversation open, what you're going to see, we've seen it. You're going to have recruits that are going to come to you and say, I would like to go talk into a counselor. And they want to talk to a counselor and they've never been to a fire in our organization. And guess what we do? We send them to a counselor in recruit school. I think that is so powerful to build a message like that because what it's showing is that we're open to talk about it, that we want to help you and that we're living our message. We're going to educate you on this. We're going to show you where to go get help. And then when you come to us, no matter what time in your career, the first week in your career, the 30th year, we're going to have some someone you can talk to. We're going to get you scheduled to talk with them, and then we're going to get you the help that you need. And it's, and, and it's so critical, but we're still learning too. We don't, we definitely don't have this 100% figured out. And I, I believe everybody's still trying to figure out these pieces. 
but we're doing the best we can with the information that we have to get firefighters the help that they need. And that's all you can ask for. Yeah. Lead people to the right resources. Absolutely. Absolutely. Early on in their career. So it becomes their norm. That's what you want. So they talk about it in the stations and they know that they can go get some help if they need it. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things I've, I've told people recently is that when, when I started the show, we, we shared it at, at a station level and our rookie actually made that comment. He'd listened to us talk and, and we have a pretty open crew and we talk a lot around the table. We talk a lot around the kitchen as, as you well know how that, if that environment fosters it. And the rookie said, I think it's, I think I need to get a, a therapist. And, and we looked at him surprised. Said, Why? And he said, I just want to get ahead of it. And to me, that was perfect. That's the perfect response. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And it also hit me that this is a guy who's got 20, 25 years ahead of him who may never know a fire service where it's not okay to talk. He probably won't. I hope he doesn't. I hope it becomes just such a part of the norm, normal conversation of talking about these different issues that we feel bother us and that it's just a normal conversation at the table. And that's kudos to you guys for doing that because that's huge because there's probably other people that don't feel comfortable doing that yet. I, I think that there's plenty of stations in my department alone that, that don't foster that environment. And that's one thing we're trying to get across. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that, not fostering that environment, I don't think it's bad intention. I think it's because one doesn't know how to foster it because it's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable conversation for a captain to walk in and how you feeling guys. That's hard. But a lot of times what I try to get across to people is just be genuine. If you go to a call and it bothers you, as I would say, when I would come back to the station, I'd say, guys, that really did bother me. I'm just checking to see how everybody's doing. And most of the time, someone would say something. And then my next question was, so what do we do? What do you think guys? And we would talk through the operational side of it. My whole goal was to get them talking because we love to talk about ops because we're operational guys. And then from there, you would start to see their, them start to change a little bit and talking about the emotional side and how it's bothering them. And which I felt was really neat because they were giving themselves their own therapy. It was really self-talk. And as they're talking through it, I could see that they felt better. And many times they would look at me and say, you know what? I feel better. I appreciate that. It just, it's so neat to say that and see that. And it's, it's exciting. So one other question that came up while we were talking, you mentioned the changes that have occurred and that you became a leader through learning all you could in applying that real life experience and the, the theoretical experience. How do you think that has been received in the fire department in general for you? That Cause that, we're so based in tradition. For sure. I know at first when I was going back to school and it was, people were wondering, you know, what I was doing, why I was doing it. And that was right. Because honestly, I was wondering why I was doing it too. I was just trying to get some direction. I, I literally went back to school because I remembered when I was at the Citadel school, helped me stay structured and disciplined. So I thought this would allow me to do the same thing. But as I was learning about those theoretical applications, I was also able to utilize them in real time going through the ranks. I was utilizing this as an engineer and then I was an acting captain and then I made captain and then I was an acting BC and I had really good guys that mentored me from our department. And it was cool because I was able to listen to them and see the leadership style and then the theories that I had learned in school and apply some of those and try to make it better. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And it was just really fun because I was learning and living it at the same time as I'm going through the ranks, but as I'm also learning from other people at my rank and above me. And I was really blessed because the guys really helped me. I had a lot of good mentors um, as a captain to help me become an acting BC. And then when I was an acting BC, I had a lot of great mentors that 
trained me to, to become a battalion chief and educated me. And then when I was a battalion chief, I had really good mentors that, that trained me to be a shift commander. And I've been blessed to, to work with those individuals from my department that didn't give up on me. And they, they took time and they invested their time in me with nothing they wanted in return. They just wanted to help me. And I'll always be appreciative of that. And every time I see these guys, it, it just, my heart leaps because I see all the stuff that they've helped me through the years and learn with the theories that I learned in school, but also apply that in real life. And it's just been such a neat journey. I just, I live it every day. And it's now I have a core of guys that are coming up through the ranks that I try to talk, I talk with them every day. And I'm good friends with these guys and we help each other and we hold each other accountable on the leadership side. And then they reach out and they do that to their companies and their battalions. And it's just neat to see it because we have a, a lot of good people that are learning over time from a very bad event and from a lot of knowledge that we've gained together in our organization. And it's, it's just exciting to be a part of something like that. So you mentioned it where you, your uh, rise through the ranks and you're still active. And where are you today? Today, I'm the assistant chief of administration. I've been in that position for a little over five months and it's, it's been really educational for me as learning how to operate a budget and learning a lot of the background operations of an organization. And coming from the operational side, I, I was very blessed to be able to be in this position because I see it from that operational viewpoint, from being in operations and in, in those different ranks. And I think that adds a lot of credibility and a lot of a genuineness to what this position is for me because I'm learning a lot that I didn't know five months ago. And I've been very open and honest about that with the individuals I work with, uh, with the battalion chiefs. I know soon, I'm not sure when this will be published, but um, soon I'll be going out to different companies and we're going to talk through administrative processes. I'm going to show them our budget, how we approve different items to be purchased, what our budget is, different line items, how we track those line items. I, I believe that firefighters want to know how that operates. And we've never known that. I didn't know that until five months ago. And I've been there for almost 18 years. So if I've always wanted to learn that, I can guarantee you that a new firefighter and a captain at BC, they would love to see how that works because firefighters are interested in, in the workings of everything. For me, it's been an educational piece and I'm so thankful to be in this position and I want to do the best I can every day to make sure the department is for those, for those firefighters that are out there that are serving every single day. Because for me now, working Monday through Friday, it's, it's, a different, it's a different environment. But what I've tried to do is take that and, and make it fun. So, someone has to do the budget. Someone has to make sure that we can you know, do different things out on the administrative side. And I've taken that head on and I've tried to put my best foot forward and, and I enjoy it. I really do. And I'm hoping that others will get interested in that piece of it because without that, we, we can't operate as a, an organization successfully. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the, that people would want to know how the administrative side works because I think that's something that runs pretty popular with, with the rank and file. I know as just a simple firefighter for myself that I would love to know the inner workings and ha have some clarity and some openness from higher ups as to what processes are. And I think that there's a tendency for some people in administration to treat knowledge as power. If I know this and you don't know this, then I've got something right. over you. And, and that just doesn't foster the right environment for a fire department to thrive. 
No, you're absolutely right. And I've always been the opposite. I think if you have information, you should share that with as many people as you can. And I make that my goal every day. If I learn something, I try to tell somebody else that's in my core group of people that, hey, I learned this today. Did you know that? And it's and that's why I'm excited. When I, I first started doing these uh, meetings with battalion chiefs, I would show them the budget and really how we track stuff. And there was a guy that's been here in our department for almost 25 years. And he looked at me and said, man, I really appreciate this. I never knew how this worked. And I said, man, I didn't either till at that point it was three months. I said, I didn't either till three months ago. And I, I was so excited about it. I wanted to show you guys too. So I genuinely was just I was excited to see how like our budget worked and how we track spending. And I thought it was just really cool because as a firefighter in the station, you think you have this infinite like debit cards, you can buy all these things. And I, I, I learned very quickly that everything that's bought, I mean, there, it is tracked and it's verified and there's multiple uh, people that have to confer, allow you to purchase these things. And there's really a lot of checks and balances that you're, you're really not aware of because no one maybe has ever taken the time to show you. And that's really what I want to do. I want, I think you can get people excited about that if they understand it. And you, you could have three or four people out there that say, man, this is really cool. I want to focus and do that with my career. And that's awesome. There you go. You just have three people now that can run your budget in a few years. It's just, that's the developmental piece I love about it. Cause I want people to be engaged. I want them to want to learn. I want them to do well. And it's, I don't know, it's something that really, you probably tell in my voice, I'm just super passionate about it. And that's fantastic because I think the goal of leadership is to, to pass on that knowledge. A is to pass on the knowledge and B is to make that person that's coming up better than you to take your spot. Oh, said, I focus on that. That's my goal every day. I look at certain people and I want you to be better than we ever were. And I want to give you the information so you can learn it now as a younger firefighter and and evolve that so when you get in this position, you can take it to a whole nother level. Uh, that, that's the entire goal. So when I look back, when I'm retired, I'm like, man, I remember him. Look how good he's doing now. And it's just, I just want the best for people. I want people to be successful. But I think we as leaders, we have a big hand in that if we take time and we just mentor and we coach them and we help them. It doesn't have to be an, an eight hour a day item to where you have to coach and mentor everyone. It could be a simple FaceTime call with three of your buddies that you care about and you're talking through stuff and you don't even have an answer. There's sometimes I talk with three or four guys at work and I don't have an answer, but it's good because we just talk through it and they, and I hope they gain some developmental knowledge out of that. And I know I do with them. It's just one of those pieces. Once you get that, that culture and that environment, it really allows a lot of the growth to take place in the background. Where are you today personally? What's life like for you personally outside of the fire service? I'm married with my wife still. We've been married. We've been together for 22 years. I have two great Danes, a Frenchie named after assistant engineer Michael French, who died on June 18th. And Lulu is my other great Dane named after Captain Lewis Mulkey, who also died on June 18th, 2007. My life is I live my message. I go to work and I, on the weekends, I, I fly out on Friday night and most weekends I'm somewhere teaching about leadership or mental health. And I come home on usually Sunday night and I go back to work and during the week and sparingly, I'll take a vacation day to, to go maybe teach an organization. But that's really, this has turned into my life's work. I, I, and I said it earlier, I live my message. I believe in what we do as leaders. And I try to live that every single day, knowing that I'm not perfect, that I make a lot of mistakes, but I put my best foot forward and I try to lead by example, and hence the reason why I, I wanted to do this podcast with you, because again, if it helps somebody, then that was the-, the the last two questions I have for you. One has to do with an everyday carry. 
I call the show The Things We All Carry. I don't know if you're familiar with the book that, that I, it's called The Things They Carry. So I based it off of that. These guys, it was a short story novel out of Vietnam. And he talks about the things you carry into battle. So I rephrased it as the things we carry into a fire, the things we carry into a, a medical call, and then the scars and the memories we carry out of a call. And I'd like to ask every guest, you know, what's something you carry today that just, you might feel naked. It's a physical item you might feel naked without if you left the house. Uh, for me, it would be my my Citadel ring. I, I would feel naked if I left the house because I I earned that at school, and I think that taught me the beginning of resiliency and how to work through a problem. And then as I grew and I matured, I've worn it every day of my life, and that's been something consistent. I can always look back at it, and I realized that when I was 21 years old and I was given that ring, I had no idea. 22 years later, what my life would evolve into with stress and with trauma and with mental health, but that's always been consistent. And I always go back to not just that ring, but I go back to the campus there because it's right around the corner from our headquarters station. And there's many days I just sit there and I drink a cup of coffee and I look at the buildings and the battalions. And I, I think about how blessed I was to be a part of that because I truly believe the only reason why I was able to get through a lot of this was that set me up with some mental health strength at first like i was built to be resilient i just had to tap back into it and figure it out and that ring just reminds me of where i came from that's actually i love that answer because i could see how the citadel would build that for you absolutely and the other one i usually ask about a book that you suggest for people to read but what i'd like you to do if you don't mind can you can you give us an idea of what you've written yourself and then maybe a book outside of that that you would suggest Yes, I wrote uh, In Honor of the Charleston Nine, A Study of Change Following Tragedy. It focuses on the change that we've gone through in our organization. I wrote another one called Action. It's a motivational book. It's got nine missions of personal and professional growth that you can go through with your company, with your battalion. It's a really fun book, but I wrote that as a motivational book to get your crew more engaged and to get you working through some issues that you may have not thought about. The third one is called From Post-Traumatic Stress to Post-Traumatic Growth. That's where I consider myself today with PTG. I'm working through something that uh, created post-traumatic stress disorder in my life and then working through my issues and with a counselor and, and trying to really stay positive and in that post-traumatic growth stage today to where I'm continuing to try to grow personally and professionally. I'm reaching out to those around me. I'm trying to help them grow. And it just gives me that strength and that belief that going forward, when you have those mentors and coaches, it, it, it lets others do better as well from the growth that you're experiencing. In that book, we also talk about a lot of the signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress and really areas where you can go receive some help if you're struggling with those signs and symptoms. And then the book we talked about earlier, Tattoos and Trauma, it's the study of how there, there, there's possibly healing tattoo, there's healing powers of tattoos by getting the tattoos that allow you to remember traumatic events that you may have been a part of. And my wife actually wrote a short book for spouses as well. She wrote that from her perspective. And I was blown away because what I put her through, I had no idea. We become so selfish when we're in these types of situations and we forget about our loved ones. And so I was very proud of her to be able to, to be brave enough to write something like that. And it's allowed us to really work through a lot of issues we've had over the years and, and become stronger. I can't thank you enough for doing the show. I appreciate it. And hopefully we do you some justice and the message gets out there. I appreciate it very much. I enjoyed speaking with you. And if you're listening out there and you're 
you want to get some help, be brave enough to make that first call. I promise you it'll be uncomfortable, but once you start to go through the process and, and you talk through items and, and you find a counselor that works for you, it will help you. Just be brave enough to take that first step because we're all struggling with something. That's, that's perfect. Uh, I think that's a perfect place to, to end it, so I appreciate it, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks so much. Have a good evening. Yes, sir. You too. All right. Take care. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.